We live our lives of human passions, cruelties, dreams, concepts, crimes, and the exercise of virtue in and beside a world devoid of our preoccupations, free from apprehension, though affected certainly by our actions. A world parallel to our own, though overlapping. We call it nature, only reluctantly admitting ourselves to be nature too. Whenever we lose track of our own obsessions, our self-concerns, because we drift for a minute, an hour even, of pure, almost pure response to that insouciant life, cloud, bird, fox, the flow of light, the dancing pilgrimage of water, vast stillness of spellbound ephemera on a lit window pane, animal voices, mineral hum, wind conversing with rain, ocean with rock, stuttering of fire to coal, then something tethered in us, hobbled like a donkey on its patch of gnawed grass and thistles, breaks free. No one discovers just where we've been when we're caught up again into our own sphere, where we must return, indeed, to evolve our destinies. It's really the core of the day for me. We sing an antiphon, a short verse before and after one of the canticles at evening prayer that talks about this is the gate of heaven. And for me, that hour is the gate of heaven where I, I am alone and I can sort of, on my best days, gaze into heaven. On my worst days, I get distracted and I read my novel. <laughs> I'm interested in what the gateway to heaven may look like from a somewhat secular perspective, which is to say a perspective that is accessible to and for everyone, not just those who choose to take on board the ideology of that cult established around the figurehead of a first century Jewish preacher, or indeed his Arab brother who became the focal point for another group of lost children looking for an all-wise, all-knowing father figure. Not quite God, but almost. I think this gateway is related to the telling. There are moments when I experience it whilst performing the sacraments of psychotherapy, when the neurotic individual ego with its complaints and bewilderments is transcended, even for a moment or two, and we find ourselves, myself and my client, uh, connected in thought and words to what I can only call our shared existential dilemma as human animals, <laughs> which is to say caught in uh, this unlanguaged animal body, but capped off with a conscious, simple processing language mind that quite often won't let us rest. And this is something that we keep on coming back to in sessions with different people and then backing away from for how can it be managed other than through this constant tying ourselves up in disagreeable and disagreeing knots with the various cells of the psyche and each other. The centaur, the satyr, the fawn, the harpy, the siren, the merman or maid, the manticore. There are dozens of hybrid creatures in myth and folklore, and whether they possess a human head with an animal body or a human body with an animal head, they all express our essentially dualistic natures and the ongoing discomfort and confusion we experience in existing in a way that's, that's never as manifest or univocal as a rock or an ambulance siren, but 
as we do with our divided cells. Of course, a microscope or a frequency analyzer could reveal worlds of multiplicity and elaboration in rocks and ambulance sirens in the so-called simple phenomena too, because anything we pay attention to reveals itself to be as networked, structured, but also as chaotic and contingent as we are. That's how humans were and always had been, flawed, discontented souls who were never at peace anywhere, even in Eden, that place round the bend of the river where the cottonwoods grew. Is the central problem then that we have forgotten or maybe just have repressed our core animal quiddity, as well as the susceptibility and vulnerability of this animal, the human animal, to environmental both inner and outer disturbances? A wildfire breaks out in Colorado, burning through an area half the size of London, killing or displacing millions of non-human animals. But unless we are directly implicated, it's a problem for them, not for us. In Australia, scientists and environmentalists have shared that the recent spate of wildfires there killed or displaced up to 3 billion non-human animals, 2.46 billion reptiles, 180 million birds, 143 million mammals, 51 million frogs. And just a reminder here, we too number among the mammals. And yet, of the 143 million non-human fatalities of the 2019 to 2020 bushfires, human fatalities, human animal fatalities, were somehow kept below 50. Because... Well, because we consider ourselves separate from nature as well as its overlords. And doesn't it suggest as much in the Bible, still considered by many to be the moral arbiter and paragon for how we non-human animals should think and behave? We've noticed the consequences for women in how Christians read the Adam and Eve story. We are now getting a clearer understanding of the dire consequences for the planet of the way we have also objectified and exploited nature for our own ends, as directed by God in Genesis when he told us to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Certain thinkers like the perennially fashionable Derrida, the white male philosopher equivalent of the little black dress, if there ever was one, these philosophers talk about deconstructing our anthropocentric conceptions of human subjectivity. And I guess such a deconstruction would disclose both the arbitrariness of the human-animal divide and maybe even the human rock divide and show that such a distinction ultimately is founded on human self-interest and self-aggrandizement. Indeed, our biased self-interest helps explain the fervency with which thinkers have searched for criteria such as rationality, tool use, language use, self-awareness or culture, um, according to which one could distinguish the human animal uh, from the non-human animal. Tahir Reynaga argues in her essay Agents of the Forgotten, Animals as the Vehicles of Shame in Kafka, that Kafka 
haunts us with these animal characters and other creatures in order to bring us face to face with humanity's alienation from its own heritage. But such alienation has inescapable moral consequences. Kafka's creatures are our, quote, prehistory incarnate, showing how our estrangement from our prelapsarian selves testifies to the loss of immediacy, innocence, and vitality in our lives, our fall into impurity and the impossibility of human redemption, end of quote. Caught within a no-man's land of shame, humanity has rejected its past in favor of dreams of heaven, but has no hope of realizing its aspirations. Thus, our alienation from the non-human world is not only a failure to treat other creatures according to the justice that they deserve, but such an estrangement also constitutes a failure to achieve a good or good enough relationship to our own history and thus to ourselves which might prompt some of us to wonder whether facing up to our origins and history more successfully, and how would we even do that, would enable humanity to foster uh, a, a more morally sound attitude towards animals. Ignorance, as José Ortega y Gasset reminds us, is our, and by our he means the human animal, our privilege. Quote, neither God nor beast, he writes, is ignorant, the former, God, because he possesses all knowledge, and the latter, the so-called beast, because he needs none. For Kafka, we are neurasthenic ciphers, forever dispossessed and subject to condemnation as we continue dreaming of heaven. The now unfashionable neurasthenia which I guess has been replaced by Emmy, chronic fatigue, that sort of thing, is surely ready for some kind of comeback. Um, neurasthenia, uh, to give you the dictionary, dictionary definition, uh, an ill-defined medical condition uh, characterized by lassitude, fatigue, headaches, and irritability, and associated chiefly with emotional disturbance. Tick, tick, tick. Are we not all <laughs> neurasthenics now in some way? Our original sin, whatever that is or was, language perhaps, having engendered this detachment from our paradisiacal core, which is also our, maybe our animal core. And thus, our Sisyphean sentence is to bear witness to our own fall, to hear over and over again of our excommunication, but no longer able, if we ever were, overdetermined creatures that we are, to alter the course of our ultimately tragic destiny. We live our lives of human passions, cruelties, dreams, concepts, crimes, and the exercise of virtue in and beside a world devoid of our preoccupations, free from apprehension, though affected certainly by our actions, a world parallel to our own, though overlapping. We call it nature only reluctantly admitting 
ourselves to be nature too. Whenever we lose track of our own obsessions, our self-concerns, because we drift for a minute, an hour even, of pure, almost pure, response to that insouciant life, cloud, bird, fox, the flow of light, the dancing pilgrimage of water, vast stillness of spellbound ephemera on a lit window pane, animal voices, mineral hum, wind conversing with rain, ocean with rock, stuttering of fire to coal. Then something tethered in us, hobbled like a donkey on its patch of gnawed grass and thistles, breaks free. No one discovers just where we've been when we're caught up again into our own sphere where we must return indeed to evolve our destinies. But we have changed a little. If someone asks, this is where I'll be, where I'll be.